thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. 26 minutes to 10 o'clock. Our lines are open for you for The Naked Scientist. Anything that you want to ask, we're stripping science down to its bare essentials on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. And of course, satisfying our curiosity about the world in which we live. Chris, good morning. Hello. Wonderful to speak to you again. So this research about nostalgia, I don't think there's anybody who's alive who's never felt that or experienced it. It's good for the brain, I hear. Yeah, it's a bit of research from, just to flag this up, I'm sorry, I'm getting the most horrendous echo. I'm getting myself back about uh, half a second after I've said everything, which a psychologist will tell you is intensely distracting. It is very, Can't even very, stand the sound of my own voice. It's very distracting. <laughs> oh, sorry, Chris. We're coming from a new studio, so I'm sure it's related to okay. that, but we've got our technicians running around trying to sort it out. I'm Thank sorry you. about that. All right, well, I'll start again, and hopefully it'll go away in a minute. Well, Dr. Tim Wildschut, he is a researcher originally from the Netherlands, but he now works at Southampton University in Britain. And actually, probably about six, seven months ago, they published this study where they were looking at nostalgia. Because one of the other people in the department where he works said that he kept having fond recollections of the country he'd come from originally and the laboratory he used to work in. And they began to work on this. And where we used to regard nostalgia as a sort of maladaptive or bad thing, now they've begun to regard this as something that actually is beneficial because it seems to, when people are in a cold room, if they think nostalgically, they feel warmer. And when couples reminisce nostalgically together, they feel closer. And it seems to be a way of bringing to the present past positive experiences to put you in a positive frame of mind for the here and now. So bringing to the fore things that have been good and happened to you in the past puts you in a good frame of mind. So just think of when the radio studio used to work better <laughs> and everything will look okay. <laughs> Didn't see that. And I'm still co- hearing myself back half a second later. Oh, I'm sorry about that, Chris. I don't know what to do. Sorry about that. We'll, we'll see if we can figure that out. But in the meantime, our okay. lines are open for you on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. We are taking your SMSs as well on 31702 and 31567. Let's go to Caleb in Rodiport. Good morning. Uh, my question is... Why do people laugh when they get tickled? <laughs> do you get tickled a lot, Caleb? Yes. Or do you have little sisters and brothers that you tickle? Uh, I tickle them a lot and they tickle me a lot. Oh, okay. Tit for tat. Chris, what do you say to Caleb? Hello, Caleb. Um, I don't know why tickling should elicit specifically a laughter, but but scientists do think that tickling is useful because 
it is a way that we, when we're little and we play, it's a way of learning where our vulnerable spots are. So if you look at where you tend to feel the most intense sensations when you're tickled, there are also the bits where if you got hit there or someone came along and you're in a, in a battle and you were hurt in that place, you'd be really seriously hurt. So it teaches you where you're most vulnerable. And when children play and when parents play with children, they very often play tickling games. And it's, it, we think it might be one way of getting people to learn which bits to watch out for and how to avoid being touched or uh, damaged in those areas in a fun way. So it sort of turns something which is an important life lesson into something that's fun. And there are two different types of tickle. There's the soft stroking tickle where someone just runs their fingers lightly over your skin and caresses, and, and that's called nismesis. And then there is the kind of deep-throated tickle where if you say, grip someone around the waist and then squeeze your fingers in and out around their waist uh, fairly firmly, that very visceral kind of takes over your body type sensation. That's called gargalysis. And they seem to be two different types of tickle, uh, but they do have the common result that they do make you pay attention to the part of the body that, that you need to watch out for. And, it, and as I say, might be a way of drawing your attention to where your vulnerable bits are so you learn to avoid being touched, grabbed or uh, hurt in those places when you grow up. All right, here's an SMS here. Um, uh, somebody wants to know, I'm curious to know as to what happens to the human blood after death. I know it pools and settles, but what happens afterwards? Does the blood dry up or does it drain out of the body? And if so, how? Well, when we look at people who have died, if they go and have a post-mortem, this is a really good way of finding that question out. When doctors want to know why a person died, then they open up the person and have a look at the organs inside. When you do this, you'll see that the blood, which is in the blood vessels, has formed what we call clot. This is different from when blood actually actively thromboses when you're alive. Clot is where the blood just stops moving around in the blood vessels because the heart stops beating, so it sits where it is, and slowly the blood forms. Um, it's almost like a jelly, and, and it just goes into a firm jelly-like sticky mass. And over time, if a person was then buried in the ground, it would just break down. So that's what happens. It forms what we call clot. It's just where the blood becomes static or stops moving, and the various proteins in the blood, including one called fibrinogen, slowly convert themselves into a more stringy form called fibrin and this just forms this jelly-like mass in the blood vessels. Chris, are you still hearing the echo? I believe it's gone now. Uh, no, it's cured. Oh, what? Sounds lovely. <laughs> cured. <laughs> Thank you very so much. So it's doing that Such thing that doctor. professionals do and when there's a problem, they don't refer to it like I did at the beginning. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Gerard in Renberg, hi. Good morning to you. Mm. A few days ago on 702, someone phoned in and they said, if we keep switching our geezer off, as ESCOM wants us to do, and the water cools down, a bacteria develops in the water, and this bacteria can give you Legionnaire's disease. I'd like to get an opinion on that. Okay, I didn't hear that one. Yes. Mm. It was in the Rudapop paper as well. Okay, Gerard? Well, what you're referring to, Gerard, is the condition Legionella pneumophila or the bug Legionella pneumophila. And Legionella is a very common microorganism. In tests in our hospital in Cambridge, we found that if the water wasn't heated to more than 60 degrees, then out of the taps would come, the hot taps would come Legionella. 
And for most people, this is not a problem. But for some people, and especially if you get very large amounts of the bacteria coming through in the water, they form a mist in the air and you can breathe them in and they can then cause this very severe pneumonia, perhaps in some people who are more vulnerable than others. But it, it would appear that most people can catch this bug. And it's certainly true that if the water temperature is under 55, 60 degrees C, then the bug can grow in the water. That said, there are very few domestic cases of Legionella's, or Legionella or Legionnaire's disease in the general population. It's quite rare, and this suggests that actually it's reasonably hard to catch. You probably have to be exposed to very high levels. And most people's domestic systems are not controlled with the degree of tolerance of a hospital water system. And therefore, the likelihood of it happening in a domestic setting is probably higher, even though... Um, people are probably more healthy in a domestic setting and they don't get Legionnaire's disease very often. So I think the chances of it happening are quite remote but you're certainly on the right lines when you say if you keep the water at a cooler temperature the chances of it being able to grow are increased and if you don't want it to grow then keeping the temperature of the water high should stop it. But if you, if you, as long as the water reaches that high temperature at least once in the cycle um, and then you use the hot water you should be fine. If it cools down then you reheat it again later, that should also be fine. So I don't think just the cycling is going to make a difference. I think as long as the water is, before you use it, heated to that high temperature and then comes out of the pipe to you, it should be all right. Dennis in Benoni, hi there. Hello, uh, hello, Reddy and uh, Chris. Sorry, I want to ask you a question about the human heart. We have a lot of people who have diseased hearts, problems with the heart. Why up to now have we not been able to replace it with a mechanical heart? What has been the, the biggest challenge to, to emulate a heart, to replace it? Okay. To, Yes, that's a very good question and something I've always wondered and Star Trek fans will know that Captain Jean-Luc Picard <laughs> uh, from The Next Generation, he actually had a, an artificial heart and everyone thinks, well, it's so simple. Why don't we just build a pump and just put a pump into the body? Yes. The problem is that blood isn't just a liquid. If you were to look at blood with a microscope, you would see that it is a tissue. It is some liquid, but it's also got a very large number of cells. About half of the volume taken up by blood is blood cells, chiefly red blood cells, but also white blood cells. And these are fragile. And the way pumps that we usually build work is that they have a sort of rotor system. So there'll be something a bit like a propeller whizzing round, and this pushes water or fluid from one side of that impeller to the other side. And in the course of doing that, it creates a lot of turbulence. And if you feed cells into that sort of thing, it behaves rather like a food blender, and all of the cells break up. So very quickly, you would basically break up all of the blood in your person, and they'd be pumping around cell debris and water and what used to be inside their cells. And this would be potentially fatal very, very quickly. So we have to come up with a design which doesn't involve some kind of propeller or a, a moving part like that that would smash all our cells up. And the way the human heart does it is by having effectively a big bag of muscle that swells up with blood, squeezes and pushes the blood out through some valves which are little flaps of tissue that whoosh open when the pressure inside the heart is higher than the pressure in the blood vessels and then they flip back closed again when the pressure in the heart drops, when it relaxes. And so we need to come up with something that works quite similarly to that in order to make sure we don't damage the blood cells that are going through. And that's the real challenge, is, is finding a, a machine that can do what the human heart does 
brilliantly for on average 80 years and that's really quite difficult to do. There are ways that we can help the heart and in the hospital not far from where I work called Papworth where they do a lot of heart transplants they will use something called balloon, an aortic balloon pump and this is where you can inflate a balloon inside the big blood vessel, the aorta that comes out of the heart and you inflate that balloon in sync with the heartbeat so the heart pushes out some blood albeit fairly weakly, you then inflate a balloon inside the artery which pushes the blood down the artery in front of the balloon and helps to push up the blood pressure. There's also a way of, of what's called uh, ventricular assist where you can take blood out of the veins coming into the heart and then push them back into the heart um, with, with one of these uh, ventricular assist devices, again using a sort of bellows system so you don't damage the um, blood cells. But these are big and bulky and they require lots of external equipment to run them. We haven't yet got a way of doing it in the compact and very, very reliable way that the human heart does it. And that's what scientists are trying to do. Here's an interesting one on SMS. Why do we burp after drinking fizzy drinks or after having a meal? Well, the reason is that fizzy drinks contain a very large amount of dissolved carbon dioxide. There's um, probably a couple of litres of dissolved carbon dioxide in your average um, bottle of fizzy drink. And when you put the drink inside you, then it meets with lots of things that are inside you. It meets a rough wall of your tummy and your um, intestines. It meets rough surfaces for, from the food you've been eating or the ice that you've swallowed with the drink. And those all act as what's called nucleation sites. And this enables the fizzy drink to, the fizz to come out of the drink and form bubbles. And once you've got little bubbles, little bubbles get more fizz out of the drink and you get big bubbles. And eventually you get a big bubble of gas and this swells up inside your, probably your stomach, but also sometimes the small intestine, distends it and makes it uncomfortable. And so you feel the urge to burp, which then releases the gas and you feel much better. Righto, let's go to Leonard in Burgundy Estate. Good morning. Hi. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, good morning. Yes. Um, I've got a question. I, I've i often seen um, mushrooms that would sort of push up tar uh, or, or sometimes even bricks, but they're, you know, mushrooms are very soft. So I've always, it always almost seems impossible or I don't really understand how it's able to do that. Hello, Leonard. I will speculate because I agree that a mushroom seems a little bit of an unfeasible way to break apart bricks. I will speculate that something else broke apart the brick mm-hmm. and that the mushroom has come up through the gap. One way this could happen is if there is, say, a tree root going through there, because tree roots use the fact that they're tough, but also they pump water into the root, and water, of course, is incompressible, and so that trees are very good at splitting things. And the roots of the trees and other plants are are usually associated with fungi anyway and so the fungi can grow along with the root following the gap opened up by the roots and things or if there's been frost that can also shatter something and the fungi send their thin threads these mycelia and hyphae into these areas the voids or along the roots and then they find their way up to the surface to produce their fruiting body, which is the mushroom. I think that's probably more likely what's happened. Mm-hmm. Leonard, thank you very much for the question. Is it Nicole in Franschuk? Hi. Um, yes, Nicole. Hi there. Um, you were speaking about the balloons earlier on about 
bringing up your blood pressure. And then I, I thought of something that happened to me in my car. I was, I had um, a child's party and I had um, helium balloons in my car. And I want to know why when I get to a robot or stop street and I stop, naturally my handbag or anything that's on the seat next to me falls off and falls forward. And then the helium balloons, they don't fall forward like that normal motion. They all move backwards, like towards your boot. Yes, hello, Nicole. And you've you've observed something. Yeah, you've observed mm. a, a very important uh, piece of physics in action. If you also watch your helium balloons, as you pull away from the robot, you'll see that the balloons don't do what most things do, which is go backwards, they'll go the opposite way. In other words, you pull away from the traffic light and the balloons will go forward towards the windscreen of the car when everything else will go backwards. So they do the opposite of what you would expect. Why is this? The reason is that the helium balloons are less dense than air. That's why they float. In other words, you've got a balloon with helium gas in it, which together the balloon and the, and the helium weighs less than the air it is pushing out of the way because it's taking up space. If it weighs less than the air it's pushing out of the way, it must be less dense than that air. And this makes it float. That's why they go up in the air. So when you're in your car, you've got to imagine that the car air is actually like a liquid because air is a fluid. Imagine it's like water in the bath and you've got a toy boat on that water. All of the air in the car, when you pull away from the lights, all of that air is going to get left behind a little bit and it's going to slop towards the back of the car. The helium balloon, which is floating on that air and is less dense, has less inertia and is going to be accelerated backwards, uh, well, less. So, in other words, it's going to be left behind less, so it's going to go forwards because all of the heavy air is going towards the back of the car, leaving the helium balloon behind. Does that make sense? Does it, Nicole? So glad. Sorry? I'm just so glad to finally have oh. a good, uh, an answer to that because I completely confused me. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a yes, Chris. That's a yes from Nicole. Brilliant. Thanks, Nicole. Great question. Thank you. I think so Thank too. You. Thank you very much. Have a lovely weekend. Um, let's go to Bruce in Renberg. Hi. Good day, really. Good day, Chris. Mm. Um, I've got a simple question, but it's, uh, it's gave me for some time, please. And that is concerning our own bodies. What is the difference between a person's pulse rate? and their heart rate. Right up. Hi, Bruce. Well, at the simplest level, and in all things being healthy and well, your pulse, when you're taking your pulse at, say, your wrist or elbow or in your neck, you're feeling a wave of pressure, which is the blood being ejected from the heart into the arteries, and it's a bit like a Newton's cradle, that those balls on strings, and you drop one ball in and the one at the far end moves off. Effectively, when blood goes into the arteries, it squeezes all of the blood further down the arteries and makes the arteries all stretch out. And you're feeling, when you feel a pulse wave, you're feeling the artery in, in whatever part of the body you're feeling stretch out transiently as the pressure goes up. Now, in all thing, in, when, when things are working well, then there should be no delay or very little delay between one wrist and the other wrist or one elbow and the other elbow but in certain circumstances you can actually end up with a delay between the pulse your heart actually beating and the pulse wave arriving in your wrist and doctors will use this to diagnose problems to do with say the valves in the heart because if you have a, a problem with a narrowed valve then the heart will squeeze very very hard but the blood will leave the heart more slowly and therefore it will only expand the arteries more slowly and therefore you will see that pulse wave arriving in the wrist more slowly and it will, it will build more slowly, it won't be an abrupt spike. So we can actually use the fact that sometimes there is a delay between the heart and the, 
and the pulse elsewhere in the body to diagnose things. And also if there's a blockage of the blood vessel on one side of the body but not on the other, then one pulse in, say, one wrist could be delayed compared with the other side. And again, we can use that as a, a diagnostic measure sometimes. Charles and Kempton Park, I think I had this question once, but it won't hurt to ask it again. Charles and Kempton Park, hi. Good morning, Reddy. Mm. Uh, what happens, or what causes the milk, boiling milk to come out of the cup if you put a spoon after microwaving it? Yeah, to bubble over, basically. Yeah, bubble out of the spoon, out, out of, out the, of cup. the cup when you put a teaspoon or yeah. a spoon in. Chris? Hi, Charles. Yeah, you have to be really careful of that because sometimes it can explode out of the cup and scald you really quite badly, mm. so do be careful. When you microwave liquids, including milk, what can happen is that the microwave oven does not uniformly heat the liquid. In other words, you don't get the same average amount of energy or heat in all of the different bits of liquid. You can have some parts of the liquid which are at very high temperatures and the bit next door is at a much lower temperature. And it takes time for the, this to even out through the liquid. And what can happen when you put the thing like a spoon in is that you disturb the, the very, very hot spot and allow it to escape where it suddenly vaporises and forms steam. And when it forms steam, it takes up a lot of space underneath all of the other liquid, pushing the other liquid out of the way. And also, because steam is going to be lighter than the liquid, it's going to try and rise upwards. So you get that explosive burst of liquid coming out of the cup. Right, and then from uh, that to Sam. Sam in Boxburg, hi. Hi, Rudy. Mm. I would like to know, actually, what happens if you, you spray an insect with this insect killer? Does it suffocate it or does it burn it? Or what, what actually happened there? What's the question, um, mosquito killer, when you, when you f- use fly spray? Yeah, like, I like couldn't hear it very well. Or whatever. Yes, whether, whether it's, it's a fly or a mosquito and you, you spray it, right? Yeah, what, use, what, what, actually, what process what, what actually happens? What actually happens, happens to, to them? Okay. Yeah, so most of these insect killers in sprays contain chemicals that are called acetylcholine esterase inhibitors. The way they work is that they block up an enzyme in the insect called acetylcholine esterase. What this does normally is that it stops the action of the signals between nerve cells and muscle cells. So when an insect wants to beat its wings or move around, messages come out of its nerve cells into muscle cells by producing the chemical acetylcholine. The acetylcholine goes onto the muscle cell and tells it to activate. The acetylcholine is then broken down by the acetylcholine esterase enzyme, which stops the muscle contracting. If you add the, the chemicals in fly spray, they go onto the enzyme, the acetylcholine esterase, and stop it working. So now, when the acetylcholine comes out of the nerve cell, it goes onto the muscle and activates it, but then there's nothing to stop it working. So the muscle keeps on contracting, and this is why the insect appears to go nuts, and, uh, and then promptly dies because effectively all of its movements stop working properly because it just basically overwhelms the muscle with acetylcholine signals and then the muscle just goes into a state of paralysis. Chris, I've got a quick one here. I'm allergic to cats. Does exposure weaken immune system over time? It's an SMS. Well, the immune system is an immune system because it learns or adapts to respond to things better. And if you are sensitized to something, then what's happened is that you've been exposed to that thing and you've made an immune response to it, and more exposure has made your immune response become even stronger, and it's more likely if you keep being exposed to something, you'll get an even better immune response to it. 
But what scientists are now finding, and this is a piece of research published by Pamela Ewan at uh, Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, they have found that if you start with very tiny amounts of something that someone is allergic to and feed them just a tiny amount by mouth every mm -hmm. day, slowly increasing the amount, you can eventually make that person become tolerant of the thing. And so they wow. took people who had catastrophic allergy to peanuts and fed them tiny amounts of peanuts every day and eventually they got to the stage where the people were eating whole peanuts and now they have to eat five peanuts a day mm -hmm. and if they eat five peanuts a day they do not have allergic life-threatening reactions to peanuts anymore so this seems to be a way of damping down the immune response if you do graded exposure over time but if you keep eating peanuts and you're already allergic to them just one off big dose of peanut you could have a catastrophic um, immune reaction so you have to be very careful how you do this but it is possible to damp down the immune response Chris thank you very much have a lovely lovely weekend and we'll get rid of these gremlins in our system bye bye <laughs> sounding good now <laughs> thank thanks really have, have a good weekend everyone bye bye, bye, -bye. thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the UK the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.